uh, ask the experts uh, with uh, Dr. Shriver. He'll join us very briefly. He's actually here live on studio. And uh, we also have uh, Ashley Starfreshed from the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence that will give us some really, really important information of that, you know, what's associated with the pandemic in this, in this arena. So thank you to Ashley for, for joining us. Uh, before I, I pass the podium on to, to John, uh, I, I do want to share uh, some sad news uh, about a colleague, a friend uh, that uh, many of you knew, either from residency or through practice, uh, Dr. Jay Sute. Jay, uh, who was part of our pediatric community, uh, part of uh, Sute uh, and Stewart Pediatrics in, in South Windsor, uh, passed away a couple of days ago, a couple of mornings ago, from a uh, devastating brain tumor that was diagnosed in March. Uh, uh, unexpected, obviously, and um, so he leaves behind his two daughters, uh, his partner Anne, and, and obviously all his colleagues at Sute Stewart Pediatrics. Uh, uh, Jay, uh, back in May, they had a, a, a drive-through uh, near the practice, and there were about 300 cars that came in to honor him and, and uh, recognize him as one of the unsung heroes uh, throughout the years. Jay was a, a junior resident when I was here as a chief resident, a uh, member of our medical school, our pediatric residency program, and then stayed here in Connecticut, formerly Fairfield, you know, from Fairfield University. Uh, he will be missed. Uh, Jay will probably want us to be smiling as opposed to be mourning him. He was, um, his, uh, his real important job was not pediatrics, although he was really good at that, uh, is that he was a stand-up comedian. And in fact, through, I think through March, probably, he, uh, he, he uh, was still performing. And so we, we, we wish him well in his new journey. Uh, keep us smiling, Jay. Give us some comfort and, and strength through these difficult times that our country is going through. Uh, we will always remember you, uh, your smile and your gentle self. Um, and, and, of course, also you are a Yankees fan. I think the Yankees won last night and were playing the Nationals. So I think you would be happy about opening day from that perspective. So with, uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask John to come up to the podium and give us an update on coronavirus. And then we'll ask uh, Ashley Starfreshet to continue. So thank you, everyone. Welcome, John. Thank you, uh, Juan. Uh, you mentioned the Yankees, and then somebody from Massachusetts gets up to the podium. I'm sweating just a little bit, but I'll, I'll restrain myself and not say a word. Um, welcome. Uh, we're in the middle of summer, and uh, we all had hoped, I think, that this was behind us, but it's not. And uh, I'm going to try to pick out, I think, some of the high points of um, what's going on this week. All of you know there's a continued national resurgence of new infections in most states. It's leveling off, and I'm going to show you those data, uh, but um, it's most of the country right now, except the Northeast. Uh, coordinated national response that uses strategies that Connecticut and other states in the Northeast use uh, to really get this under control in about six weeks and then carefully reopen. It really needs to be implemented nationally, and there's some move now, actually, to sort of reboot the national response. Uh, my hope is that we can get organized to do that. Uh, the Northeast USA has successfully managed the outbreak, and actually, if you look at what, what's happening in the Northeast, it's very much like the EU right now, uh, under control. Some, uh, some things pop up here and there, well-controlled, and a gradual economic reopening. This virus, unfortunately, is not obeying state boundaries, and, and travel is going to become a big issue, and Connecticut has responded to that. We'll mention that in just a minute. And we are going to import cases, and there is going to be some more community spread as we reopen. We need to be vigilant and manage it. And uh, my hope is we'll be successful doing that. 
Now here's Connecticut um, today. And uh, again, uh, much like last week, if you look at the top, which are the number of new confirmed cases, it's a very low percent of total tests are positive now. It's there. And we pop up in a couple of towns here and there, but it's not a lot. And the deaths have tailored off to, to counting on one hand um, or zero daily. It's a very good situation. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm certainly very proud that the leadership of the state, the DPH, and the people of the state, as well as the surrounding states, have, have made this successful. It's quite an achievement. Now, this is important. These are the hospitalizations across Connecticut. And you'll see we have some, but boy, is it lower than it was. I mean, it's a sprinkling. There are a couple people in the hospital in Litchfield, Hartford about 17. This is a couple of days old. And it's going down with one exception that Fairfield County had an increase of about two cases. We need to watch that. Uh, there's a, you know, you want to make sure that's not a trend. But in general, the number of hospitalizations are stable or going down across the state, which is a good situation. Now, I do want to remind everyone, and it becomes sort of invisible. You see the numbers every night on the news, you know, 10,000 people and 800 deaths or whatever it is. And these are real people. And if you look at Connecticut deaths, uh, they are overrepresented. And if you look at deaths per 100,000, and the left is the Latino population of the state, and you can see the African-American, it's an even age adjusted much higher death rates uh, than other um, individuals in Connecticut. And, and this is to me a, um, it's like a canary in a coal mine of public health, socioeconomic, and a variety of other issues that we need to address. These are real people uh, with families and husbands and wives and, and partners and loved ones. And um, this is something I believe we're gonna need to address as a country moving forward. Okay. Now, uh, I tried this on Monday, and then I had to change it twice because Connecticut kept adding states, unfortunately, that exceed 10 new cases per 100,000. It's pretty much the entire country except the Northeast. Um, uh, and um, there are new rules in Connecticut now um, to self-quarantine. Uh, healthcare providers are no longer exempt from that. And there's a $1,000 fine. And in addition, if you're coming into the state, there's an online form or in the airport, a paper form to fill out and uh, report to DPH. So Connecticut's getting serious about trying to maintain our success given the storm encircling the rest of the country. And um, so if you are gonna travel, uh, try to stay local. If you can't, then self-quarantine, seriously self-quarantine on the way home and follow the rules so we don't inadvertently infect others. Now, our neighbor to the north, our giant neighbor to the north, which is twice the population of Connecticut, that would be Massachusetts, is very relevant. Uh, a lot of people vacation there. They go back and forth. Uh, and recognize Massachusetts has a lot more cases than Connecticut. There were 192 new cases in Massachusetts. That was Wednesday. 107,000 total cases and 18 deaths. So we need to keep watch on this. People move back and across the, uh, state lines. I think they've done a great job in Massachusetts, which had a more aggressive outbreak than can, even Connecticut did. And most of these cases are centered on the eastern part of the state, Worcester and East. But this is important because this is very close to us, and, and we're going to need to keep watch on surrounding states. But the, the overall trend in Massachusetts is quite good. It is going down. The United States, new cases 
rocketed up with all of the outbreak across the country. But you can see here that it's beginning to level out. And I'll show you two big states that uh, have improvements now. And so although it's, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 cases a day, and that's beginning to tailor down. And I think that's very important. Remember the death rate lags. This seems to be a fact that um, for some reason was forgotten by some of the national leaders, but the death rate lags. We know that people get sick. It's a two week incubation period. They end up in the hospital, it takes a week to die. If they're going to die and you can see the death rate in the United States continues to rise. And I believe it will continue to rise for at least a few more weeks because it lags the, all these new cases. Let's look at Arizona, which had one of the most serious outbreaks. Um, there's a lot of activity in the state, a lot more stressing on masks and social distancing and shutting down of bars and things in Phoenix. And you can see it's had an impact. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's what we know works. Social distancing, wearing a mask, washing your hands, don't go to bars and pubs and party. And we know uh, that works and it's working in Arizona. Unfortunately, as I said, the death rate lags and they're having, you know, one to 200 deaths a day. Uh, and it's quite a bit. Uh, and so these are real people, um, again, like I said, with real families. And sometimes I think our news reporting uh, doesn't really grasp that for all of us. Florida, um, you know, disastrous, but leveling off. I mean, at one point they had 15,000 cases earlier in last week, and now it's about 10,000 a day, more than 10,000 a day. It's, you know, horrible, but it's leveling out. And uh, I think it's dawning, uh, this is regional, by the way, it's not being led from the state capitals, being led by the mayors who are shutting down bars and putting on masks and, and, and trying to get this under control in the hot spots in the state. And there's some evidence of leveling out, which is great news. Um, the death rate continues to rise at 150 deaths, 100 de more than 100 deaths a day in the state. Um, and so this is going to be very significant to get under control. And it looks like it might be going in the right direction. Now, this is, I think, really important new data that came out. Um, it, it, came in, it was in JAMA Internal Medicine. And they went ahead and looked from March to May at actual COVID infections um, and then did an antibody survey to see who actually got infected. So 10 people actually had COVID, but then they went out and did serology on everybody to figure out how many people really got infected, even though we diagnosed 10 cases. And they actually, they found out if you go down this list, you can see that in general, the seroprevalence showed that the actual cases were about 10 times that which was showing up in clinics and hospitals. So this is a big deal. It means there are thousands of people who got infected. You can see the New York City data. Uh, you know, you had uh, 9 million people, 9.5 million people, seroprevalence of 7%, and the number of cases reported doesn't match that. It's way lower than that. It's about 10 times higher number of cases. So. That lets you know this has swept through the population. It's one of the reasons it's so difficult to control the spread. There's so many people infected who are really not that sick out there infecting others. So actual COVID-19 infections are about 10 times the reported cases. So you can just imagine if Florida's having 10,000 cases a day, it's probably 100,000. So it's, uh, it's sobering. More data on masking, and this is an interesting study that looked at when universal masking came in for healthcare workers and their patients. 
and then looking at healthcare worker COVID infections. And it really drops off after that was instituted. And there's some confounding, there's another part of the graph I took out, there's some confounding variables of how many cases were in the community and this and that. And they controlled for all that. And they found that it was statistically significant that wearing masks, the patients wearing masks, healthcare workers wearing masks, actually was very protective to healthcare workers in preventing infection. So I think these are, you know, we're starting to get data on things that we thought were true that I think are very important. Now, um, another more data of, we, we, we were starting to think that dexamethasone for very sick hospitalized patients with COVID-19 was good. And this is a study that actually shows it is. And you can see that um, invasive mechanical ventilation was, uh, was very statistically reduced and um, oxygenation that was required was less. And so mortality also was reduced, but not a lot, but it was significant. So dexamethasone helps hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And I, I think these are good data to guide our therapies for our sick patients. Um, some new data on MISI, uh, the inflammatory disorder that appears to be post-COVID in children. And this is from the UK. And they've had 27 children who um, had PCR or antibody positive uh, SARS, but then they found four of them had very acute onset neurologic symptoms. They tested the CSF for SARS that was negative, the two kids they did test. So a lot of inflammation in the brain on MRT2, hyperintense lesions. And they believe this is not true SARS infection, but a pro-inflammatory syndrome in the brain. And so uh, we're going to need to watch for this, particularly as new MISI cases pop up in Florida and Arizona and all these other states that have huge outbreaks right now. We know there's going to be more pediatric MISI in about a month there. So this was a, another sobering uh, case reports of some serious neurologic outcomes with MISI. Is immunity to COVID-2 infection long-lasting? A critical question. I wish I could say you get it and it's like pertussis, you're immune for life, um, but that's not true. And there were anecdotal observations of previously infected people getting ill again with a new positive PCR. We weren't really sure what to do with that. We know other coronavirus immunity is short-lived. We know that. But there's some new data from both UCLA and the UK showing that the half-life of antibodies after you're infected is relatively short. We don't know about T-cell immunity. That could continue, just antibodies. And we have no idea for our immunized volunteers how long that antibody and immunity is going to last. And here's a study from UCLA showing a rapid decay of anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. These are people who had mild COVID-19. They didn't really have to be hospitalized, most of them. And the average half-life for the antibodies against COVID-19 was about 70 days. So, you know, we have to watch this very carefully, and it's, it's possible this is going to be important, both epidemiologically and guiding vaccine strategies, uh, if the anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies decay quickly. Coronavirus vaccines, the today's deep dive, there's been a lot of news, and, and one of the things that make me very nervous is when vaccine companies and the media sort of generate a lot of excitement about coronavirus vaccines. And this is a great headline from Nature News. Coronavirus vaccines leap through safety trials, but which one will work is anybody's guess. And I think that's exactly where we are. And 
I, I, I am nervous that we're misleading um, when we, we show these data that are just so early. For example, this is uh, a recombinant adenovirus uh, 5 vectored COVID-19 vaccine study. It's the Chinese vaccine. Uh, the UK also has one. Um, and there's 603 volunteers and 126 completed follow-ups. And this is a minuscule number of people. And it's great, the vaccine generated neutralizing antibodies. And here's the data on that on the right. A lot of antibodies are made, they're neutralizing, it seems to work, but I mean, it's a minuscule number of people. And, and uh, they didn't, you know, there was no uh, serious adverse outcome, but it's only a few months, few weeks. And we know um, sometimes post-vaccine negative outcomes can take many months. So I'm excited. Uh, these are great early data, but we need to be realistic and give that message to our patients to be realistic about how long it will take to truly have a safe and efficacious vaccine. Here's the other uh, exciting news that was on NBC and CBS, and um, I'm not sure about Fox, um, but uh, this is the UK adenovirus vaccine. Safety and immunogenicity, this was published. Finally, we're getting some papers out. It's not just by, uh, you know, media release. But, you know, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a relatively small number. It's a phase one, two, a controlled trial on the right um, is convalescent plasma. That's your positive control. And on the next one over, you can see there's a lot of uh, COVID-19 antibodies made after this vaccine. It's very immunogenic, seems to work. But you know, concerns about adenovirus as a vector, this is a human adenovirus. If we're exposed to it subsequently after being immunized, what does that do? Does, do you boost COVID? Um, is that good to boost more antibodies to COVID? Do you, do you make antibodies to adenovirus? and Maybe you get a little sicker because your immune response is so robust. We really don't know. And so this is where, again, I think when it says safety in immunogenicity, these are very early. And certainly the early safety seems, profile seems to be quite good, but we need to be cautious and make sure that safety um, and immunogenicity continue um, with these vaccines. So exciting early data, but we have a long way to go. Now, um, the, oh, this, oh, this, by the way, um, is I think where we're going. Um, there are great new data uh, where we're we are putting our most cutting edge science uh, into figuring out this virus. It's remarkable. It's only been a few weeks. This is from David Ho's lab at Columbia University. And what they've done, actually, I think this slide's out of order, um, but what they've done is they immunized um, uh, with, uh, these are, these are not immunized. These were patients who were infected with COVID. And then they looked at spike protein. Let's see if I can go backwards. How does, how does it go backwards? Okay. And they measured the antibodies from these people against various uh, epitopes, various pieces of that spike protein. These are all individuals who were infected with COVID, made a lot of antibody. And then they picked out individuals that made an enormous amount of neutralizing antibody, which is B on the bottom. These are all, each curve is a person. And they made a lot of neutralizing antibody. Then they cloned those antibodies and they've, they've mapped and crystallized the spike protein. It's just incredible. And then they were able to pick out the antibodies that bound, this is the epitope mapping of the antibodies to the spike protein and picking out exactly which binding site generates the best neutralizing antibody. This is great work. Um, I believe it's going to guide both monoclonal antibody therapy and probably vaccines, second-generation vaccines. 
And I think what's going to happen is we're probably going to have an early vaccine that will come out, uh, probably multiple early vaccines. Uh, they'll probably work. And I think there'll be refinement and new development, and there'll be a second generation of vaccines based on some of the science that's happening right now that might be more efficacious. So uh, this is exciting work. It was in Nature, and again, for Columbia University, University of Hong Kong, and Harvard, uh, really creating the database for next generation treatment and vaccines for COVID-19. So um, where are we at today, July 24th? Um, seems like you know, only um, a year ago that this happened, but um, there, the good news, there's unprecedented, I just showed you some data of, of the best science in the, really in the history of mankind being applied to this pandemic. Unprecedented rapidity of scientific discovery about the pathogenesis, the human immune response and vaccine development. I, I just don't think it's ever happened this fast. So it's remarkable and it's a tribute, I think, to the scientific community all over the world the New England region and the Northeast remain stable with low community spread. Really, this should be a role model as to actions required to control the virus in the rest of the United States. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, and I, 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 I don't think this is a political statement. I, I'm trying to be very factual. The, the chaotic, politicized, and variable response across the U.S. has led to a huge spike in new cases in almost every state except the Northeast and rapidly increasing COVID-19 related deaths that were preventable. Uh, this was a preventable situation. Um, it is what it is. Our job now is to look to the future and try to get it under control and reduce the mortality as best we can. For us here, robust vigilance is gonna be required in the coming months for us to hang on to these gains. Um, and so uh, I leave you with that this week. I do, I do, I'm actually glad that our next presentation talks about the home because in addition to all the stresses, people not being able to leave their house um, has created some challenges uh, also. And, and I think it's important for us to understand those personal challenges that are crossing uh, our communities as well as this virus. So I'll hand it off now and thank you for being here today. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Let's keep going to uh, the update on intimate partner violence and COVID-19. Thanks so much. Um, thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm excited to give you guys some information on um, the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. My name is Ashley Starr-Crochette. I'm the Director of Health Professional Outreach, and um, I'm here just to give you an update on what we've kind of seen throughout the pandemic and just some of the adaptions that we've made. Um, and then hopefully answer any questions that you might have. Um, go ahead to the next slide. Um, so before we start, I just wanted to um, show a map of our agency. So if you're not familiar with us, CCADV is the state's leading voice for victims of intimate partner violence and the agencies that serve them. Um, so as you can see, we have 18 member organizations across the state. And I'll go into a little bit more information about our statewide hotline. Um, we used to have 18 different hotlines throughout the state. Uh, we, as of January 1st, we had condensed those all down into one statewide hotline, which allowed us to have the ability to text, call, um, email, and live chat, which has been um, kind of a, a godsend as we moved into this pandemic, um, giving that option to be able to not only call, but have the option to live chat or text. Um, so all of our member organizations, all 18 of them throughout the pandemic have continued to run 
um, all of their services, obviously adapting some of those. Um, but all 18 um, have been able to kind of pivot the way that we administer services. So our counseling and support groups that are available for children and adults, um, those all moved to virtual options um, when the pandemic started. We have started to slowly move back into trying to do um, socially distance services in person because what we found was that it's very difficult for individuals of who are dealing with intimate partner violence who might be isolated with that abuser to attend those virtual um, options that we allow them. Um, but um, so for those that, that would rather come in person or weren't able to tell the person where they were going, when they used to go to those support group meetings, um, we've been able to adapt those. Um, now, now that we're back, um, some of us are back in, but all of our emergency shelters continued to run throughout the pandemic. Um, I'll show a slide a little bit later on how we were able to, to move around the population that was in all of our 18 um, intimate partner shelters. Um, the court advocates have been really essential throughout um, this pandemic. As um, some of you might know, when this started, our courts went down to only six courts in the state. Um, so for those trying to, uh, or who are dealing with a domestic violence arrest, it is a, usually arraigned that next day. Um, an individual usually seeking restraining orders or protective orders, um, something for the safety of them and their family. So thankfully the court advocates um, were able to remain in the courts that were open. And those who were not open were um, very diligent about keeping up with any of the arrests and working with these individuals virtually. And actually for the first time ever, we've been able to um, get approval from the governor so that you could file and get a restraining order online. Uh, you can call Safe Connect and they would help that individual kind of navigate that system online. Usually they have to go in person, get it notarized. Um, so that was an original um, challenge for us when we were trying to get transportation and safety for that um, during all these closures. Uh, the safety planning, obviously, we're still continuing always with the 24-7 hotline. Um, and our lethality assessment program, um, Connecticut is one of the only states in the nation that has a lethality assessment program that the police administer um, when they go to a domestic violence arrest. They identify who the victim is and who the dominant aggressor is. Um, and they are supposed to administer the lethality assessment um, for that victim right on scene. And that did continue um, throughout the pandemic if it was a call specific to domestic violence. And then our education and training, we really shifted almost everything virtually, which has been um, really great. And we've been trying to um, add all sorts of resources to our virtual um, library that we've kind of heard from victims and survivors as we move through this. A lot of stress around food, around um, housing insecurities around their children. Um, so trying to make sure we got to those resources. Um, so I just put this slide uh, here for intimate partner violence, the definition of intimate partner violence, just as a reminder, only because um, the pictures, I just always like to point this out. So as we went through the coronavirus um, pandemic, we obviously um, were seeing a lot more, uh, you know, just emphasizing the many different ways that IPV can present itself. Um, financial abuse seemed to be a really big sticking point during IP, um, during this pandemic because that insecurity or, or having those funds withheld um, was a really big um, deterrent when people were trying to think about how they could safely um, leave or do anything. So next slide. So just some statistics um, that we've had throughout the pandemic. So as the pandemic started in March, we had um, a pretty good increase in the number of calls 
to our hotline. Um, so about 64% of those were first time callers, which we really attribute thankfully to um, health professionals like yourself who have helped us kind of encourage this resource and get the word out there that it exists. Um, because unfortunately, a lot of people don't actually know that there is a, a safe uh, voluntary hotline that they can call that isn't connected to the police. It's not connected to DCF. It's not connected to ICE. Um, so kind of getting that word out. Um, as the state started to reopen, um, what was interesting is we did start to see, continue to see an uptick in the number of calls, um, more because people were able to get a little bit out of their house at some points, um, which was not possible when they were um, isolating um, during the pandemic. So we were getting, you know, those chances when they would be able to go to the, to the grocery store would be when they would be able to call us. Um, so having to really schedule those calls was very important. But unfortunately, as the state has opened, um, that control that these abusers have been able to have over those individuals um, has been lifted a little with people's um, increased freedom. And so unfortunately, we have seen an uptick in the severity of the violence um, that we're seeing and the complexity of those cases um, dealing with mental health um, and a lot of repeat callers and a lot of individuals um, seeking supports to get restraining orders um, because of, of that isolation and now um, a little bit more freedom to be able to talk safely. Um, so unfortunately, that, that time when we were really isolated was um, really hard for vic victims who really um, came way more under control than they, than they were um, normally. Um, and then we've obviously gotten a ton more calls from victims and survivors with increased um, concerns, and never mind just the violence, but those concerns over, well, how could I possibly leave this um, if I'm unsure of where my next meal is coming from, um, job loss, et cetera. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so here's just a quick example of how our sheltering has um, worked throughout the pandemic. So as you can see, when the pandemic started, we're, we're always um, over capacity. So uh, when it started, we were at 122% capacity for all 18 of our member um, safe houses. And um, so what we were able to do, thankfully with assistance from um, HUD and um, working with our member organizations, we were able to increase the number of individuals that we could hotel um, to hope to, to make sure that we were separating out a little bit more. Uh, we used to be able to like double um, bunk singles within our safe houses, um, obviously uh, reducing that as much as we could uh, within this pandemic to make sure that we were keeping people safe, but still offering that option for those um, who needed that shelter. Um, so we continue to do that right now, which has been very helpful to continue to keep that social distancing and keep um, a room available that's empty um, in case there's any situations where we have um, infections. So next slide, please. Um, so obviously some of the observations that we've seen, we've seen obviously an increased isolation, that stress and danger, um, really that inability to speak out um, verbally if they did need supports. Um, so needing more of that um, conversation brought up by someone else um, has been more helpful. We've gotten a lot of calls with um, individuals who are having almost like a PTSD response to this isolation um, because maybe they're not currently being abused, but it was reminding them of times when they were isolated by their abuser in the past, um, or if they were a child who grew up with something like that, um, getting calls on needing some supports around that. So we've had a lot more of those trauma um, type calls and um, mental health support calls, which has been um, a change for sure. Um, we also obviously get a lot of calls about the economic vulnerabilities. Um, kind of exacerbating the point that, um, you know, victims, unfortunately, a lot of times are having their um, funds withheld or um, they're nervous for what's going to go, you know, happen to their children if they can't get this or that. So um, we did um, have a little shift. So the 
C2 law enforcement um, generally does respond to medical only 911 calls. Um, but during the pandemic, they were not responding to medical only 911 calls. Um, so those might be those individuals who possibly, you know, fell down the stairs or didn't disclose that it was directly domestic violence. So unfortunately, we kind of lost that safety net there. So it, we kind of relied more on EMS, ER, um, staff, any medical providers to um, ensure that we were at least having some visual cues about IPV or, or a question or screen about IPV, um, because usually that safety net of the police doing that um, lethality assessment was not, was not there during that time. Um, I talked about the, the court closures and um, having the move to do restraining orders online that has been very helpful. Um, and one, the biggest thing I've seen is that you as health professionals, you might actually be the only people that have had contact with these individuals um, or were able to, to reach out to those individuals because they have that excuse that, you know, you, this is something that they needed to do. Um, so you guys play a really huge role with that, um, breaking that kind of isolation or having that feeling like, oh, someone is going to check on, in on me on this day. Um, home health aides as well um, have been, been huge during this. So, next slide. Um, so how can you help? So if you can go to the next slide. So very briefly, I know this is a lot of information all at once, but what we've done, so as we know, um, we know that one in four women and one in seven men have been severely physically abused at some point in their life nationally. So um, we obviously know it's, it's a high number of individuals. So what we had asked health professionals to do is that if they could please um, implement an educational script within their, their talk, whenever they talk with any patient, any family members, um, it, this has been really helpful for us, again, getting those first-time callers or people that didn't necessarily know that this resource existed. Um, so using that excuse of the pandemic as a reason to open up this educational script so it's not pointed at anyone. Um, it could be used to help a friend, not, not saying this is directed for, to you. Um, but the simple script that we developed, this could be used with telehealth or if you are still doing in person, it can easily be adapted. Um, but what we've been encouraging is um, the script with increased isolation and stress due to COVID-19. We've started talking about intimate partner violence with all patients because it can have such serious impacts on health. And for you, you can add, um, can have such serious impacts on the health of you and your children. Um, we wanted to let you know that Connecticut has a 24-7 IPV hotline called Safe Connect. Safe Connect advocates understand complicated relationships and all services are free, safe, confidential, and voluntary. If you or anyone you know might benefit from these resources, please call 888-774-2900 or email and live chat an advocate at ctsafeconnect.org. Um, so those resources, uh, next slide please. So this script um, has just been very, extremely helpful for us because it's not pointed, it's not asking any questions. So if you're using telehealth and that um, abuser happens to be in the home, it's just an educational script that you're giving to everyone. Um, if it's in person, Again, now, thankfully, people are coming to appointments alone, so it's a very easy way to um, get that education out there to individuals. The reason we found such success with it is that, that that repetitive education throughout this pandemic and continuing in case we go back into this situation has been that if, if that individual doesn't necessarily need that resource that day, that's fine, but they hear it every single time. Um, it's been very helpful for those individuals who might, you know, that day maybe need something or think of a friend who could use that. Um, especially during the pandemic, we found that um, the repetition of it gave that opportunity for someone to write it down safely. When maybe the first time you gave it to them, they couldn't have written it down because the abuser was near them. Or they know, hey, this is being repeated every time. I could probably ask a question back the next time um, without having to verbally say themselves, hey, I'm being abused, which most people do not have 
um, the ability to do or the strength to do. Um, so you bringing up that topic has been extremely helpful for those victims who maybe just want to say, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, so we do encourage anyone who's using telehealth to make sure if you um, can please remember to assure that the individual takes it off, um, off speaker if they can, or I know it's hard to deal with people's schedules, but if someone's really you know, trying to assert that they need a certain day, that might be the only time that that individual had um, privacy or was able to go to the store. Like I said, we've been getting a lot of calls when people get that hour trip to go to the store to buy food for their kids. Um, so uh, trying to work with people on a safe time um, or if they can take a walk, put in headphones. If kids are in the room that are over three, um, asking if those kids have headphones on or if they could take their phones off the speaker um, can also be helpful as well. Um, and I found it helpful to emphasize the availability of the texting option or the live chat. Um, you can try it yourself. You go to ctsafeconnect.org, you'll see there's a safe escape button in the top right hand corner. So if someone walked in that wasn't supposed to see that, they can safely escape. Um, it will go back to their homepage. Um, and if you yourself have any questions, you can easily type into an advocate. Those are live advocates that are there 24 7. And I always remember, try to remind my patients, um, any consumers, anyone, that you do not have to say your name when you call Safe Connect. If someone is fearful, a lot of times with IPV, they're not even sure if they are abused. Um, they just say, you know, well, they never hit me, but they, they scream at me all the time and they take my money um, when I do get it. So people who may have a question, they're not sure, they're nervous about ICE, DCF, police, this is not attached to them, it's voluntary, and they do not have to say their name. Next slide. Um, so again, I want to just emphasize if you guys are educating already or if you've been working, um, you know, with people who you considered might have IPV going on, disclosure is not the goal. It's never been the goal. Most people are very un unsure of how they can talk about this. They're not even sure if they are abused. Um, and, and they have that fear that if they disclose something like this, that, you know, they could be hurt or killed themselves. So disclosure is not the goal. And um, so if you feel like it's frustrating because you've never really gotten that disclosure, please know that your education is, is what they need and it is helping. We get so many calls saying, hey, I learned this from my health professional, but I didn't have the ability to say something at that time. Or, hey, I got this handout from a health professional um, a while ago and I just, I couldn't bring myself to call you then. But um, so knowing that, that what you're doing, giving that education is so helpful, especially for those um, uh, kids who've grown up in homes where they, they thought this was normal, maybe um, they didn't know what healthy relationships are, kind of that constant education about what healthy relationships are and the resources available in the state can be very helpful. Next slide. So if you do get a disclosure, I just want to make sure to give you that resource. So if you are on a telehealth call at this point or in person, um, make, making sure to validate what they're saying. Um, I know it can be hard sometimes when they're disclosing these terrible acts, um, making sure you're letting them know that help is available um, and that they're not alone. Um, and then educate them on what you kind of learned today. So basically that Safe Connect exists and um, that they can call without having to say their name. Uh, this is for anyone. They're there to meet them where they're at. This is not someone who's going to force them to do one thing or another. They're, this is their, their job every day. Um, the best thing that you can do if you are in person or on telehealth call is to ask them if, you, if they are comfortable with you referring them right then and there to an advocate. So you can merge that call or if they're in the office, you can use an office phone um, to connect them with an advocate right then and there. That's where we see the greatest level of success. Um, so they actually learn what this resource is about instead of just thinking, oh, a domestic violence hotline, that doesn't sound right. Because um, a lot of people think, you know, if I call that, I have to go to shelter and that's not the case at all. It's whatever is safest and, and necessary for them. Um, and then especially during the pandemic, we've really encouraged that follow-up. Like I said, you might be the only people that they're talking to. 
So allowing um, the IPV advocates to be the experts in that field and you continue to be the experts in your own field, um, but making sure to check in um, and, and giving them that, that kind of safety net of knowing that there's someone to talk to. Next slide. Um, so before I wrap up, I just want to emphasize what Safe Connect is. So as of January 1st, we consolidated all of our hotlines into one statewide hotline. Um, so all of our advocates that are at our office, they speak at least two languages and they have the ability to speak in over 200. Um, so please don't let that be a deterrent for anyone. They're there to meet the person where they're at. Um, they've maybe been through these situations themselves. Um, and it is 24 seven, it's voluntary, like I said. Um, I do mention that IPV in and of itself in the state of Connecticut is not a mandated reporting opportunity. So if you're ever unsure, you're feeling uneasy about a situation, or you know that a case has to be reported to DCF because of what the mom disclosed, um, please always give that victim the opportunity to get themselves um, support as well by, by connecting them to an IPV advocate as well. Or if you're unsure, you're not sure if it should be reported, um, give that IPV advocate a call. Um, you can put them on speaker, like I said, and they are there to help you as well. Um, we also, you can contact those advocates anytime for tariffs, handouts, anything that would be helpful to you, or you can contact myself um, and we can get you any of those resources. Next slide. Um, and I just put here, and I'm, I'm sure you guys will get the slides after this, but um, on our website, which is um, ctcadv.org, we have a health professional link on the left-hand side that has the opportunity to print our tariffs. I can also mail you them if you want the perforated ones. Um, we have our telehealth script and toolkit that we've developed throughout the pandemic. Um, and we've been trying to do weekly updates on, on our Facebook Live, which is usually every Wednesday at two, um, to update individuals on kind of the things that victims and survivors have been reaching out about. Um, so different topics every week. And then Futures Without Violence is an excellent national resource and they have really good scripts and videos for children. They have a YouTube um, channel on how you can speak with children, uh, young adults about IPV. Um, and they have adapted some of these resources obviously for the pandemic as well. Next slide. And this is my contact information, so please don't hesitate to reach out if you ever have any questions or resources. We really appreciate um, you, your help as health professionals um, in getting these resources out there, and um, thank you for the time. Thank you, uh, Ashley. That was uh, very, very helpful and uh, you know, so appreciative of what you're doing and, and your team is doing on behalf of uh, keeping keeping everyone safe and advocating for, uh, for men and women and children that, that are suffering uh, in the midst of this pandemic. And uh, this is so, so important, so really appreciate it. We have a number of questions uh, this morning, and so we're gonna try to get through as many as we can. And, and we'll begin with, uh, uh, with Dr. Shriver. Uh, the question is from Larry Serzer. Do you think influenza vaccination should be mandated this year for all schools? If so, how might pediatricians advocate for such a policy change? Um, I guess I'll back up and I think influenza immunization is critical this year because uh, we really like to make sure that the optimal number of people are immune so we don't have to grapple with two epidemics. So absolutely, it would be very, very important. Um, in terms of mandates, you know, um, uh, it's a complicated question right now. I think Connecticut seems to have very good compliance with a number of mandates that have been released, and it certainly might be worthwhile advocating for it. At the end of the day, parents and families have to buy in that this is really important, and that involves education on our part and on the part of DPH to explain to people how important it will be not to get influenza during a pandemic season that's already there. So. The best I can answer that question, I don't know, even Dr. Salazar wants to dive in on that. I'll leave it for the next uh, 
presentation. Next presentation. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is a question for Ashley from uh, Nilda Fernandez, one of our case manager social workers in the HIV program, um, and strong advocate for you know for uh, for women and children. And and her question, I think you answered it, but I'd like you to comment a little further. Are bilingual advocate services made available for Ashley? Uh, thank you so much. So Safe Connect, when you call Safe Connect, um, all of our staff speaks at least two languages and they do have the option to use um, the interpretive services. So we do have up to 200 languages. Um, and most of our calls during the pandemic have been um, utilizing our Spanish resources. So yes, that, that is available. And then all of our member agencies, once those calls go through Safe Connect, they're connected to the member agencies in the area of that individual and they all do have the same resources as well. Um, here's some Dr. Zellneritis uh, for Dr. Schreiber. We hear all the time about the things, uh, the things to do if there's a seasonal resurgence, SARS-CoV-2 in the fall winter. Is it not the reality that it has not gone away and that we're in the throes of a second surge already over much of the country? You know, um, I, I think um, it's probably not going to go away until we have a good immunization plan. But I'm not sure. I think clearly in New England and North, Northeast, we flattened the curve, we've gotten rid of the first wave, and we now have this stable, low-level transmission in the community. Um, so we've accomplished what Italy and some other countries in the EU fought hard to accomplish. The rest of the country, if you look at the curve, and I think um, some of our public health advocates nationally have suggested this, we never really flattened the curve. So the first wave in the rest of the country is continuing, it just got worse. So, Ed, I, I guess I'd answer that by saying in part of the country, we w our resurgence will be a real resurgence. But I think if we're careful in the Northeast, as we are, we probably can keep a resurgence under control. The rest of the country never got the first wave taken care of. So uh, that's kind of where we are nationally. Okay, great. Um, Ashley, this is, uh, is sort of, I guess, a comment. Um, and from one of our pediatricians, you know, pediatricians are very busy. They're connecting via Zoom or they're connecting in person. So the question is, how do you incorporate, uh, you know, these questions uh, and some of these elements in a 10-minute visit when, when they come into, into your office? Uh, sort of a practical nature. Any, any comments on that? Um, so that's a great question. I know you guys are always pressed for time, but I do always emphasize that um, although it might seem like it's taking up a good amount of time, that script that I gave you can take, um, I think, two minutes max, just education on IPV. Um, and it is so important just because, unfortunately, with this isolation, we know that IPV is usually not disclosed. Often, um, it's even harder now. So it, you really can be helping someone just by giving, you know, taking the time once in a while to give that resource. Um, we've also had um, some of our health professionals use, I guess, you, if you have a telehealth weight room, um, waiting area, they put up our poster, which I can send you electronically, which just kind of screens across um, so that they have that information. Or if you have um, electronic medical, um, like my chart system, you can ask if it's okay to send that information um, to them. It's just a, a physical image of what that resource is, just because we do know, unfortunately, most people consider that only the police are the option for IPV, um, and, and they usually don't feel comfortable talking um, to those people. So. It, it can be as short as two minutes, and I know you have very limited time, but there are other ways we can help. Um, if there's something specific that would be helpful to your, to your um, practice, we can make up a, a small resource that could be um, electronically sent over as well. Thank you for the practical advice. Uh, John from Felicia Willing, one of our pediatricians, can you comment on how school opening can possibly work to maintain the flattened curve that Connecticut achieved? 
That's a great question. I'll repeat it. How can school opening occur and maintain the flat curve that we've achieved in Connecticut? You know, um, I don't make policy, but I think as a public health and infectious disease doctor, I can think of a few ways. And make it data-based. If you look at children zero to five, the data suggests they're not big transmitters of COVID. They transmit, but not a lot. So, you know, that group of that age group would be managed a certain way in schools. And that might be, for example, cohorting. Uh, 20 kids are kept together continuously and they're cohorted and you're able to separate as much as you can and the cafeteria doesn't exist anymore in their way. And then you don't mix the kids. So you have one cohort, another cohort, another cohort, and they're not mixed around. So if there is an ill child, it stays within that cohort, doesn't spread through the whole school. There are a variety of ways in the elementary school age group that you can manage that. None of them are perfect. The older kids are spreaders. 14 and above, the data suggests they're just like adults. And so treat them like adults. Social distancing, wearing masks. When they walk into the school, take their temperature. All the technology's there. It's cheap now. Take everyone's temp, just like when we walk in this building. And I think you could probably manage it. It's going to require cooperation on the part of parents and students. And the other issue are the teachers. Um, there are teachers who are elderly, at risk, have diabetes, things like that. And we have to make sure that we protect our teachers as well. So I think it's doable. It's going to require thought, resources, and public cooperation. Thank you. Uh, actually, there was a comment also. The, the SWIC is a developmental screen for well child checks that has a screen for IPV between parents integrated into it. It's, a, it's free of cost. Do, do you know of this one? Uh, can you comment on it? Yeah, that's great um, and can be used, obviously. So the reason we were t talking only about the script that we had was just because of due to the isolation, we were trying not to ask any questions at that point. Um, but those screens are great and can be used, especially as long as um, we're making sure those individuals are alone. Um, we just weren't encouraging that um, any type of questioning while they were using telemed um, during the isolation just because of you know being probably isolated in that same home as the abuser. Great, thank you. Uh, John, the, the next one's for you. Uh, just can you talk a little bit about the new travel policy? The new travel policy for Connecticut children's? So we're, we're as you are aware, I mentioned the state has uh, changed uh, by executive order, changed their travel policy and that if we leave Connecticut and go to any of those states in the map, which is most of the United States now, um, on coming back, a 14-day quarantine, uh, self-quarantine is mandatory, as is filling out a form, by the way, uh, to, to submit. Um, and uh, healthcare providers and essential workers are no longer exempt from that policy. Now, mixed in with that order um, also is the ability to test. And so if you're leaving a hot zone, uh, you can test within 72 hours of coming back to Connecticut. And if you're negative, you could return to work. At Connecticut Children's, if we do that, you will be self-monitoring twice a day at work, um, much as we did prior to the new executive order in Connecticut. So we, uh, to summarize, we urge our healthcare providers at Connecticut Children's uh, not to travel to hotspots. Obviously, there are gonna be times where it's necessary. And um, recently, uh, someone contacted me, for example, uh, there was a family emergency and a house sale and a variety of things that had to happen. And, and so the individual needed to travel. And so now coming back, um, you're going to need to self-quarantine for two weeks unless there's a negative test within 72 hours of coming back or 
On occasion, uh, we might test an individual who's already, who just got back and test them. They'll self-quarantine until that test is negative. That's where we stand with it, Juan. Thank you. Um, it, and it is confusing at times because it keeps changing. And it so does we have change to, so uh, we've, weekly. We've said, we said we have to be nimble and, and, and adapt very quickly to everything that goes on. And um, okay, then uh, again, this one is for, um, it, it's sort of a common, from, common question from Dr. Lau. How is mandatory quarantine of out-of-state travelers enforced in Connecticut? Is it by honor system? If so, how effective is that? So, so will this be effective, John? You know, it's a great question, as with all mandates. Um, I'm amazed if you look at the data of how we've done. Um, you know, a lot of it's voluntary, and we've done very well in the state. I think in general, um, most people get it. Most people don't want to make uh, their cousin or grandmother or parents sick, and, and I think we've done well with that. But, you know, people traveling to Connecticut, it is an honor system. You drive across the state border, and you're going to the beach in Connecticut, and you're supposed to self-quarantine, but let's stop at the supermarket and get everything we need first. And, oh, well, you know, we need to, while we're at it, let's get some ice cream. And you're right. Um, now, I will say, if you look carefully um, at the new directives from the governor, there's a $1,000 fine for failing to self-quarantine uh, and failing to fill out the paperwork. Um, and so I think Theoretically, you know, if you're in a neighborhood and there's a renter who just arrived from Florida uh, and they just are out and about, you could call DPH and say there's somebody out and about who just got here from Florida and I'm kind of concerned about it, $1,000 fine. Realistically, in my view, I think the best way to get compliance is factual education of people. Look, this is our death rate today. It's really low. Look at Florida. They're losing 200 friends, family a day. Let's keep it that way. These are the steps you have to do. Um, I think there should be a billboard when you enter the state on the interstate that says, hey, if you're coming into the state, here's the website. It's really easy. You could do it right now on your iPhone on the passenger side. You got to self-quarantine. You know, I, I think we need to educate um, and lead and very consistently lead our public to do the right thing. And in my view, um, I think most Americans will do that. Thank you. This is uh, from Carrie Strine, also for you, John, and then uh, we'll segue into Ashley after that. Many of us are helping our schools develop plans. One question that came to me was, if one child is sent home from school due to possible COVID symptoms, should the sibling also be sent home and quarantine unless there's a negative COVID test or positive strep or something else, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, there are going to be a hundred of these questions that come up. I can only give you my opinion, and, and it will be an opinion. I think I'd send the kid home who's sick and test them. The sibling who's not sick, um, I probably wouldn't send home. But if the test came back positive, I probably wouldn't test the sibling. So I think you have to be uh, balanced. Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to send every kid home who has a strep throat and then send the whole family home. And it's, it's, it's something that we're going to have to be thoughtful and balanced about. But that's just my opinion of how I would manage that particular question as it came up. Ashley, uh, sort of related to that, uh, it, 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 your opinion of the effect of not opening schools in the fall on, on domestic violence. I don't know if you, yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. Uh, we have mixed, mixed um, reviews from, from our victims and survivors, um, many of them wanting to get the kids out because usually that is how they are used it. You know, that's a protective model um, when it comes to the IPV, trying to keep the kids out of the house. 
as much as possible. Um, so a lot of them are, um, you know, hopeful that that would be a way to, to get them back to more of a normalcy. But then again, like I said, we've had a, a ton of increased concern over how they're going to afford, um, you know, a lot of them still working or trying to work um, and getting childcare, getting people home. Um, so that concern. And then also we have seen, unfortunately, people using that as a way um, as a form of abuse. Well, this person's, in, you guys are infecting me or putting me at risk. Um, so that concern as well. Um, we unfortunately had a lot of individuals who didn't have as, as great access for the virtual learning. So they really struggled with that, but we tried to, to assist in ways that we could. And I know the state's doing a really great job of, of helping with that. So I would say it's mixed. Thanks. I mean, I think what this pandemic has done more than ever is, is brought out our health disparities and uh, emphasize the, you know, the social determinants of health. And then um, it's different if you're in a suburbia in a, in a uh, single home versus uh, crowded environments within the, you know, our inner cities. And, and I imagine uh, it's, it probably affects both populations, but it's, this is very complex. So it's hard work. And I think the pediatrician's role in this, while very difficult in a short period of time, it is important to incorporate this into our question and answer uh, moving forward. Uh, another question for John. Um, well, it, this, this might be more for an HR person, but I'll, but I'll ask it anyways. In Connecticut, is there an exemption, exemption to paid sick leave during the 14-day quarantine period if the person traveled to the hotspot state for non-essential vacation reasons? New York has an exemption in this situation requiring use of benefit days during the quarantine 14-day period. You know, I, I will admit I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a great question to ask at the next town hall. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I, I do. yeah, it's it's complex. Uh, and and right now, if you travel for a vacation purpose, in at Connecticut Children's, uh, and you know future travel, and you know you're coming, and we've told you not to travel, it's your choice to travel. When you come back, you have to quarantine, and you're not in the in the front lines. Uh, you do have to take uh, basically more PTO during those 14 days. But it, it's a it's it's hard. It's very complicated. Um, all right, I, let me see what else do I have here. And any suggestions for office planning for administering flu vaccines this year? The usual method of family flu clinic seems problematic when we're trying to social distance, keep traffic flow down in our offices. Uh, I know that uh, at least at Connecticut Children's is a very active plan um, with our infection control nurses. First, determining the amount of flu vaccine we're going to need, when it's going to become available, and how to administer it. I'm not sure all of the details on that has been worked out yet. Uh, but it's a very active discussion item right now, an important one. Thank you for asking that. We have one last question for Ashley, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, when will courts be open to hear cases regarding child custody situation? Uh, partner, verbal, emotional abuse, potential child abuse, situation turned down by DCF, early in quarantine, initial court date several weeks ago. Um, thank you. That's a great question. And unfortunately, what a lot of our victims and survivors have been dealing with throughout this pandemic. So when they went down to the six um, courts only in the state, we unfortunately saw a massive backlog. They are at this time doing level one cases, quote unquote. Um, so unfortunately, they, these, these type of cases um, continue to try to get bumped. Um, so we've had people getting pushed back, pushed back um, so many times. So the best thing that I can say is um, if that individual has not already been connected with a court advocate, there are family court advocates in all of our courts in the state of Connecticut um, to call the court or you can call Safe Connect and ask to be connected with the local court advocate because um, they can help advocate and make sure that that case is being watched. They can send you alerts um, and, and help advocate that those things are being pushed um, 
forward because obviously we don't want to have any um, situations where there'd be a problem. Also on uh, Wednesday the 29th, our director of, um, uh, of all of our court systems is going to be talking about um, kind of the court updates and restraining order things. Um, so if, if you have time on next Wednesday at two, um, she might be able to answer some specific questions, but I definitely suggest talking and reaching out to the family advocate through Safe Connect. Thank you, Ashley. And uh, it's, it's nine o'clock, so uh, we will uh, we'll wrap it up. We have, thank you for, for your participation, both with John and Ashley. Great presentation as always. Thank you for the questions all of you have asked. We have uh, close to 160 people this morning. And Nicole, somebody needs an EEDS code for today. So if you can, have, if you can email them that so they can actually log in and get their CME. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll see you again last, uh, the last Friday of the month. And uh, then we'll take a month off for uh, John's uh, Friday require vacation so that he can catch up. And uh, he'll come back in September with a, uh, hopefully another um, three or four months of, of presentations. Uh, again, thank you for joining Thanks us. Have everyone. a good night. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you, Ashley.